public forums program of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. This program brings together scholars, specialist commentators, and the general public to explore historical perspectives on contemporary issues. The following forum, titled Rewriting the Story of Girls' Education in STEM, Past and Through Present, was recorded live in front of an audience at the Wagner Free Institute of Science, but the discussion continues online. We invite you to join us and add your voice to the conversation. Visit chstm.org slash girls in STEM, where you may view video from the event, add comments or questions in the discussion forum, read additional expert commentary, and access relevant resources. the director of the Wagner Free Institute of Science, and I'm delighted to welcome you to tonight's program, Rewriting the Story of Girls' Education in STEM, Past Through Present, with our guest speakers, Dr. Kim Tolley and Dr. Natalie King, who will bring a historical and a contemporary perspective to the story of American girls' access to science and math education over the past two centuries. We're particularly pleased to present this program at the Wagner. It links together our historic mission as an educational institution founded in 1855 specifically to teach science to adults. It's the oldest program of its kind in the country. And the vision here was a progressive one. The classes were free to make them accessible to everyone, and they were open to women from the very beginning. In the early 20th century, the Wagner extended its programs to children, and the image you see now shows the seats that you're actually sitting in, filled with several hundred Philadelphia children celebrating, of all things, the 200th birthday anniversary of the Swedish naturalist Linnaeus. Today, we continue to serve all ages, but we have a strong uh, commitment to engaging Philadelphia children, including girls, in science learning. So we're delighted to bring together two scholars to talk about the evolution of what and how we teach or don't teach science to girls. Dr. Tolly and Dr. Kim, uh, Dr. King will take us from the 1800s to the present, and discuss new approaches to STEM learning that aim to engage girls and to make science truly accessible. This event is co-sponsored by the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and we thank them for working with us, and is made possible by very generous support from the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The consortium, of which the Wagner is a founding member, comprises 26 cultural, education, and scientific institutions that work together to support research and provide historical perspectives on contemporary issues in science, technology, and medicine. And if you want to learn more about the consortium and its activities, see the URL that's on the screen right here or on the handout that we gave you. The program is in three parts. First, Kim Tolley and Natalie King will each give their own presentation on the work that they do, and then we will open the floor for questions and conversation. I'm now pleased to introduce our speakers. Kim Tolley is a historian of science and professor at Notre Dame de Nemours University in California. 
Her research interests include a range of subjects related to women and science, education, and slavery. She has also looked at the response to school vaccination requirements in the 19th and 20th century, which is a particularly timely topic at the moment. She is the author of Heading South to Teach, The World of Susan Nye Hutchinson, 1815 to 1845, and The Science Education of American Girls, A Historical Perspective, which the American Association of College and Research Libraries designated an outstanding academic title. She also served as the editor of several books about the evolution of schools and educational practices, including Transformations in Schooling, Comparative and Historical Perspectives, and Professors in the Gig Economy, Unionizing Adjunct Faculty in America. And most recently, she has served as the president of the History of Education Society. Natalie King, who will follow immediately, um, is an assistant professor of science education at Georgia State University. Her scholarly work focuses on advancing black girls in STEM education, community-based youth programs, and the role of curriculum in fostering equity in science teaching and learning. She is passionate about preparing students to enter careers within the STEM disciplines and has recently founded I Am STEM, an informal STEM program that provides comprehensive curriculum embracing students' cultural experiences while also preparing them to become productive, critically conscious citizens. She offers trainings and curricular support to help organizations deliver high quality and affordable STEM programs, and she has the goal to help develop this generation's um, next generation of scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, inventors, and mathematicians. She's also published extensively in the Journal of Research and Science Teaching, the Journal of Multicultural Affairs, and the Urban Education Research and Policy Annals. Uh, she has a new book, hot off the press, literally, picked up today, um, Let the Church Say Amen to STEM, Guidebook to Launching and Growing Extraordinary Youth Programs. She's brought copies with her tonight, so you'll be able to take a look uh, and see them after the talk. So I am now going to turn over and welcome Dr. Kim Tolley. Thank you. Can everybody hear me? Good. Have girls always had relatively little interest in STEM? We know from research that girls sometimes develop a lack of confidence and a, lack of, a loss of self-esteem in these subjects in middle school. And that when they enter the high school, they continually lose interest and drop these courses or don't enroll in them at all. And until fairly recently, policymakers thought this state of affairs had always existed in the US. But historical research reveals a very different picture. The history of girls' STEM education over the last 200 years reveals periods of increased access and opportunity and sometimes periods of backlash and restructuring. Today's talk draws from my recent book and focuses on three topics. Expanded access in the early national period, the effect of backlash and restructuring from the late 19th century up to 1960, and factors that historically have encouraged or hindered girls' participation in STEM. And some of those factors are still in play today, which I think is one thing that makes history really relevant. It may seem counterintuitive to think of science as a girl subject, 
but to some extent we first knew about this because of documents from Great Britain. In 1864, the British government funded a study of the education of middle-class boys. They established a commission to investigate schools over a period of four years. And initially, the commissioners thought they would just look, perhaps, at girls' schools as well, just to see. And over that four years, they visited schools, they talked to headmasters, they looked at the courses of study and the enrollment records. They actually interviewed teachers and they examined students. And to their surprise, over that four-year period, they found that while the sciences maintained a sort of toehold in boys' schools, they were very popular and almost ubiquitous in girls' schools. A boys' education centered on the classics, the study of Latin and Greek. And I'm talking here about students between the ages of about 12 up to 16 or 18. In contrast, a girls' course of study included the sciences, botany, natural philosophy, which I'm going to be calling physics in this talk, natural history, physiology, and so on. Educators justified teaching science to girls not because they thought that girls would grow up to be geographers, scientists, or engineers, but because, at the time, they believed that knowledge of, of the world would lead to increased knowledge of God. They believed that uh, teaching science to, girl, to girls would improve their ability to reason, it would strengthen their intellect. They believed that it would be useful preparation for motherhood and for a possible role as a teacher of young children. And what I find most fascinating is that some contemporaries at that era believed that it would also perhaps raise a young woman's social status because learning how to converse knowledgeably about science and social situations might make her attractive to a nice, upper-class young man. In contrast, to some of the first examples in textbooks where an enlightened man has a conversation with two young children. Some of the earliest texts published out of England, including Jane Marset's popular texts, included conversations between a highly scientific lady who has a conversation with younger women. And I have an excerpt for you. I'll read it with you, but this is basically an excerpt where the young woman, Caroline, has just come off a wonderful and inspiring study of astronomy, and now she's saying she's not sure she's going to be interested in chemistry at all. To confess the truth, Mrs. B, I am not disposed to form a very favorable idea of chemistry, nor do I expect to derive much entertainment from it. But Mrs. B retorts, I rather imagine that your want of taste for chemistry proceeds from the very limited idea you entertain of its object. I assure you that the most wonderful and the most interesting phenomena of nature are almost all of them produced by chemical powers. In these books, in these 19th century texts, some of which had illustrations showing young girls doing science experiments, like this example, which was written by an American, Amara Hart Lincoln Phelps, basically conveyed to girls that it was perfectly appropriate to study science. There were pictures of them doing it. We call this role modeling in our world now. There was ample role modeling during this period. This girl is so young as she does an experiment with iodine that she has to stand on an ottoman to be able to reach the table. Not everyone could learn about science during this period in the early national period. This was before the establishment of common or public schools that were open to all. The schools that were teaching science at this period charged tuition. And you can actually get a sense of the race and economic status of the people practicing science, the women and, and girls practicing science, just by looking at the illustrations. Take this one, for example. 
from another of Phelps books in 1838. The mother and her daughter are doing an experiment in what looks like a dining or a sitting room. It's a fairly elaborate room. It has a carved mantle. Oops, I'm sorry. Let me go back. Oops. Did that disappear? All right, so it has a carved mantle in the room. And as they're doing this experiment to see which objects sink and which objects float, it becomes clear in the text that they're using a gold coin. So these were white females. They were wealthy females. They were upper-middle-class females. But the fact that African-American or Native American or Hispanic girls are missing in all of these contemporary illustrations doesn't mean that those girls didn't have access to science if they were in the middle and upper middle classes. We know from documentary evidence, for example, that the Cherokee Nation's female academies uh, studied, had courses of study that included the science. For example, this is a picture of the academy at Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And in the course of study there, we know that girls studied botany, astronomy, and physics. We also know that in northern communities before the Civil War, Pre-African American girls could study science in town schools and in private academies. For instance, Char Char uh, Charlotte Fortin's journal entries reveal that when she was in a school in Salem, Massachusetts, she studied geography, geology, physics, and entomology, the study of insects. Rebecca Cole studied science when she was a student here in Philadelphia at the Institute for Colored Youth. And after she graduated, uh, from that school in 1863, she went on to attain a medical degree and became the second African-American female doctor in the US. So we do know from anecdotal evidence that girls were studying science, a broader range of girls than we might think initially. I'll give you an example in the next two slides of what some of the evidence looks like. This, for example, is an example of a table drawn from the enrollment data for a Genesee Wesleyan Seminary in New York. The students there ranged in age from, again, about 12 to 16. And they had girls operating, operating, studying in one department and boys studying in another. But the school kept track of the enrollments of both sexes during this period. We can see that there are many more boys than there were girls. But in physics, for example, which I've highlighted in red, more greater numbers of the girls took physics and also a greater percentage of the girls. Nearly 60% of the girls are taking physics in comparison to 28% of the boys. And the same disparity in enrollment is seen across all of those subjects. Here's another example from a published newspaper advertisement in a North Carolina school. Many schools to attract prospective students advertised their courses of study so that parents could look and see what the school offered for a boy or a girl and then make a decision. Is this a place where I want to enroll my child? And it was very common during this era to see a list of subjects for boys that included mathematics, like uh, algebra, geometry, subjects like navigation and surveying. And you would never see those subjects on a girl's course of study. But at the same time, in the girl's course of study, you would find astronomy, physics, botany, chemistry and you would not see those advertised for a boy's course of study. Doesn't mean a boy couldn't attain the study of those subjects in a school, but it was such a low priority that a school of that period didn't think to, it was important to advertise it. During this period, 
women didn't generally do higher math. They did arithmetic, or what we call arithmetic. And that gradually begins to change. But I want to take a minute to give you a sense of the kind of arithmetic they did. We know what they did because of samples of surviving girls' math journals. This are, these are two pages from the math journal of Martha Ryan, who was a 14-year-old in North Carolina, I believe. Um, and she was writing in the late 18th century, right at the close of the Revolutionary War. She doodled all over her journal so you can tell that she was following the outcomes of these battles at sea because she was writing the names of some of the ships that had been taken. And I was very excited that the whole cover of her math journal is emblazoned with the phrase liberty or death. You know, so she was following all of that. Um, but here's an example of the kinds of problems that she did. On the page on the left, the problem is written in words at the top. And because I know you can't read that, I'm going to read it to you. Four persons make a joint stock for 12 months. Now, to make a joint stock is to invest in some enterprise together. And the idea is you'll make or lose money, and then you divvy up the profit or loss at the end. So four persons make joint stock for 12 months. One puts in 164 pounds, another 206, another 199 pounds, and the fourth 312. And when they settled their accounts, they found they had lost 232 pounds. What part of the loss must each person sustain? So it's an arithmetic problem, but it's not necessarily a straightforward do the math, do the addition, do the subtraction problem. It's a problem out of problem solving. She learned how to calculate rates of exchange in order to barter, barter barrels of pitch for gallons of rum. Such lessons constituted useful knowledge that Americans thought was important for all young ladies. In fact, based on what I've seen in her journal, she could probably have settled her brother's gambling debts. But whereas the notion of teaching arithmetic to girls was not at all controversial, the idea of teaching them geometry or algebra was a completely different story. This is how one contemporary described it. Geometry. The sound of this word in reference to females is very terrific. Terrific as in striking terror into the hearts of parents. Parents startle at it as though it possessed some talismanic power of converting their delicate daughters into tempest-beaten rovers of the deep and sunburnt surveyors of the forest. What we do know is that the very, one of the very earliest educators to begin teaching higher math to young women was Emma Willard. She started teaching herself geometry in around 1807, and when she opened a Waterford Academy in New York, she conducted the very first public examination of a student in geometry. It was a young woman named Miss Kramer. And this is the sort of contemporary report that survived of that episode. Miss Kramer was the first pupil. Her examination in geometry caused a wonderful excitement. Some said it was all a work of memory, for no woman ever did or could understand geometry. Some people thought that it was an utter mistake to begin to teach uh, any girls geometry because they never could possibly learn the subject and it was a complete waste of time. But gradually more schools began adding algebra, geometry, and even trigonometry to their subjects with the result that we know that some of those texts that were used in girls' schools 
started including geometry and the explanations of physics concepts. This is a text by Alonzo Gray, who was an instructor in Brooklyn Female Academy. In the preface to this text, he explained that he had developed the book for the female students under his care there. And this is an algebraic explanation of Newton's law of gravitational force. Based on data from 162 schools during this period that Thomas Woody collected and published in 1929, that I broke into two separate kind of periods, you can see that for the early period, up to 1829, that's, those are the purple bars, there's really very little algebra, geometry, or trigonometry appearing in girls' courses of study. But that changes quite dramatically after 1830 when you have more of, the more of these topics appearing. The first time that national statistics appear is not until the end of the 19th century, around 1890. And by 1890, more boys were beginning to study science also in their school. More importantly, boys and girls were attending coeducational public schools. And the national statistics that were collected by the government in that year show that at that time, the enrollments of boys and girls in all of these subjects were equal. Another thing that's interesting about this is that during this period, and boys and girls were not attending sex-segregated physics. They were not attending sex-segregated algebra. They were sitting side by side in the same classes, and they were using the same texts. So at that point, these subjects were subjects for everybody. Although public high schools did not, although public high schools did not offer girls classes in engineering specifically, some young women learned about mechanics in their physics classes. Anecdotally, we know that the, the trustees' reports from Troy Female Seminary revealed that in 1839, around 7% of the girls at that school were taking classes in mechanics. We also have classroom photographs taken at the Hampton Institute in Virginia in 1899. They do show uh, young women enrolled alongside in men, men in physics and chemistry classes, and the picture of, on the left is from a chemistry class. They also show women enrolled in mechanics classes, as shown in the picture on the right. That picture shows students studying the mechanics of a cheese press screw, which was an enormous, fairly large machine. Throughout the 19th century, as more girls came to study the sciences, they began to pursue these subjects outside of school and more intensely. By the 1820s, so many women had started to take an interest in botany that the botanist Amos Eaton uh, said that he thought more than half the botanists in New York were women, and he made that comment in the preface of his botany text. He said that people had been writing to him saying, you should do a botany text for women. And his response to that was, they don't need one. Large numbers of women began attending astronomy conferences and began working in astronomy as lab assistants initially. This is a picture taken in 1914 of the American, of the Astro Astronomical, American Astronomical Society meeting. And of the 35 participants here, for example, 46% are women. After women's medical colleges began to open, Near mid-century, women also began to obtain medical degrees and practice as physicians. Some of these early pioneers came from middle-class families, able to afford the tuition, but some worked their way through. 
And one of the most inspiring examples is shown here. Eliza Ann Greer became the first African-American doctor in the state of Georgia. It took her seven years to go through medical school because she put herself through the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, which was here in Philadelphia. She put herself through by studying for one year, then returning down south picking cotton as a sharecropper for one year, and then coming north with those funds to study more, and then going back. During this period, although there's less known about this, some women began to seek patents for their inventions. We know from data from the US Patent Office that by 1888, women inventors had been granted more than 2,000 patents. Anytime you go to a grocery store and get groceries in a paper bag that has a square bottom, you can think about Margaret E. Knight, who invented the machine to make those paper bags. That was essentially her invention. In April 1890, Charlotte Smith published a little journal called The American, The Woman Inventor to highlight these achievements and advocate for women in technology. One of the most interesting findings I encountered was uh, at Stanford and the University of Wisconsin and UC Berkeley and also the University of Michigan. I happened to be doing research at those four institutions and I decided to look into the registers to see if women were getting BAs in the sciences or math. Here's an example of what I found from Stanford, and the pattern holds true for all those other three institutions during this period. From about 1897 to 1922, most of the students getting BA degrees in math were women at Stanford. And then that begins to drop after 1922, and we'll talk about some of the factors that contributed to that. But that pattern holds true at other, at other institutions as well. Throughout the 19th century, girls increasingly studied science and mathematics in public and private schools. But this trend reversed in the early 20th century. National stats show that from 1900 to 1960, girls' enrollments in these subjects fell sharply at a slight, slight diff, slightly different times. I pointed out that the math BAs at Stanford fall, start falling somewhere between 1910 and 1922. Girls' enrollments in high school math starts to fall in that same period. Girls' enrollments in physics starts to fall in 1890 and disappears from over 20% to around 1% or 2%. That's close to 2%. I think it's 1.8%. The enrollments in math fall precipitously during that period, too. So why did that happen? Well, the backlash had been simmering for decades. All during this period I've been talking about, where science becomes a girl subject, there were always critics. And 19th century school books had always reinforced gender stereotyping to some degree. And here's just an example of that. This is an 1827 science text that shows two students engaged in geography study outdoors. The young boy is working with a compass doing his geography work. The young girl is drawing a plant. Use of a compass would be useful to a young man who might want to find work as a surveyor or as a navigator. But it was basically unheard of during this period for a young woman to find work as a surveyor or a navigator. And some critics, such as the writer of Bedford Female Academy's advertisement in 1837, spelled it out in case people hadn't really been thinking this through. 
Women are not destined to be navigators, nor opticians, nor almanac makers, nor practical mechanics, nor miners, nor engineers, nor doctors of medicine. They should understand much more of cookery than of chemistry. Those ideas gained more prominence as more working class girls began to fill science and math classrooms in the higher grades of public schools. And as more women began seeking paid work in occupations dominated by men, these kind of arguments intensified. In a well-publicized criticism of female education in 1864, Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, expressed dismay. He said, I go into one of these public schools, and there are girls who are to be wives and mothers of farmers and mechanics to cook, to sew, to darn, wash, starch, and make butter and cheese. And when I see them studying algebra and trigonometry and logarithms and making astronomical calculations, I ask whether this does not preclude or take the place of what would be more useful, what, will they, what they will urgently need to know. The home economics movement emerged in response to such concerns. And women generally supported this movement because they felt it would be useful for girls, not only because of that, but because some women were beginning to find roles in universities and colleges in home, home economics. Some of the first faculty members in colleges and universities who were women were in those departments. But at the high school level, home economics was not science-based. It was always cooking and sewing based on the documentary evidence that has survived. During this period, another subject that came to prominence was the commercial courses aimed to promote vocational training. And girls, these were very popular with young girls because clerical work could, find, could provide a kind of career ladder for a young woman who wanted to graduate from high school and enter the job market right away. All of these enrollment shifts led to a different kind of gender stereotyping in terms of what girls should study and what boys should study. And one of the most interesting to me is what happened to Latin. Latin was definitely a boy subject in the early national period. But by 1814, you see comments like this one. The differences between boys and girls in regard to Latin is especially interesting. The intrinsic quality of the subjects makes more of an appeal to the girl mind than to the boy mind. On the other hand, boys surpass girls in their interest in math, mathematics, history, and physical sciences. During the early national period, you couldn't possibly make this argument because there were very few girls were enrolling in Latin. It was highly a boy's subject in terms of enrollment. But that completely shifted in the early 20th century. And the reason that happened was as more colleges and universities began to open to young women near the end of the 19th century, some of them had admission requirements for a short period of a span of about two decades. That the, the applicant had to pass a test in the classics. And to do that, young women had to study for Latin. When girls started enrolling in commercial courses, home economics, and the college-bound girls started enrolling in Latin, those enrollments came at a cost to other subjects. They came at a cost to subjects like math and science. And some educators really cheered this. God bless the girl who refuses to study algebra. It is a study that has caused many a girl to lose her soul uh, there may still be girls who feel this way, I don't know, but this was a comment actually made at a, at, a, at a meeting of the National Education Association by the superintendent of schools in Los Angeles, and it was reprinted across the, across the country. 
It was not controversial at the time. So here's the result of all of these changes. From 1910 to 1948, enrollments in algebra fall by 50%. Enrollments in the commercial courses rise. And so by 1948, there are more girls taking typing than, and the other commercial courses than there are taking algebra. The only science to buck this trend was biology. And that happened because also during this period, there was a, a commission called the Committee of Ten. It was established by the National Education Association to come up with, up with recommendations for college and university ad admission. And the Commission of Ten recommended that only two years of math should be required in the high school and only one year of science. And they recommended putting biology in the ninth grade um, or in the 10th grade, chemistry in the 11th grade, and physics in the 12th grade. So biology was still required in many high schools in 1910. But after that, chemistry and physics became elective courses. And as they elected to take home ec or commercial courses, girls gave up those subjects in droves. And so the access and exposure that a girl would have needed to even figure out whether she liked chemistry or physics disappeared. If a girl had been asked in 1960, what progress do you think women might make in science over the next 40 years? She might have predicted that women would make no progress whatsoever, but she would have been mistaken. The 60s was the decade of the women's movement, which brought these issues to the fore. It was also the decade in which President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed an affirmative action order requiring uh, that corporations receiving federal funds begin looking at hiring women. During the next 30 years, the proportion of bachelor's degrees awarded to women in the sciences would rise, and that's shown on this graph. In certain STEM fields, gender equities today remains elusive, particularly for African-American, Hispanic, and Native American girls. But the current picture is not what it was a half century ago. What conclusions can we draw from girls' experience in STEM during the last 200 years? A number of factors appear to have hindered or facilitated girls' participation. Several factors correlate with girls' declining participation. And they include a negative gender stereotyping of a subject, whatever it is, perceived lack of opportunities for meaningful participation in, or, or employment in a field, and finally, lack of access or exposure to STEM subjects in fields with barriers to entry. For example, the gender stereotyping of physics as a boy's subject in the early to mid 20th century, coupled with diminishing exposure to any physics courses in the high school, accompanied a period of declining enrollment in physics. There are also positive factors that correlate with girls' increasing exposure and participation in STEM subjects. One is positive role modeling and encouragement. Putting up a picture of Mae Jameson in a classroom could have the same effect on a young girl starting to think about physics or astrophysics for the first time as having a textbook that has a conversation between a woman and a girl and pictures of young girls doing science experiments. 
Opportunities for meaningful participation or employment are important. A young girl needs to know whether she could, be a, she could go into meteorology. She needs to have a clear sense of what career paths are available in medicine. She also needs to have institutional structures that allow girls access, exposure, and time to gain subject proficiency, especially in fields with barriers to entry. In the, across the country, girls have had more exposure to biology than any other science. And they've had more exposure to biology than any other science since 1910. In biology classes, therefore, girls have also encountered female science teachers who can serve as role models and mentors. These experiences can lead to what we call positive self-attribution, where a girl says, hmm, this fits who I am. I think I can do this. So it's probably not surprising that in the health science and the life science fields, young women have begun to uh, you know, overwhelmingly almost take over the, field, the number of bachelor degrees awarded in those sciences. And women are now predominating in medicine as well, which is a fairly high-paying profession. It's a good thing. It's a good thing now, especially since every family needs to have two earners in the family to get by, I think. Today, the movement to encourage girls in STEM aims to broaden every girl's access to STEM subjects. What we know from history is that almost any subject can become widely viewed as a natural fit for girls. This has happened in the past for physics, with chemistry, and with natural history. There's good reason to believe that with increased encouragement, access, role modeling, and meaningful employment opportunities, all young women can achieve equal access and opportunity in STEM. And Dr. King is going to tell you all about how that will work. Thank you. So today's talk um, starts with um, the theme is rewriting the story of girls' education in STEM, past through present. And so uh, Dr. Tolly, she segued really nicely into what I would like to share with you today. And so I want to start with saying thank you. Thank you to the Wagner Free Institute of Science for, um, and the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine for coming together and offering this. So why would I say thank you first? Normally, you would end with your thank yous. Um, but I wanted to point out um, some of their mission and the vision that they have as um, organizations and consortiums. So with the consortium, they want to explore how to meet the challenges of a complex world in technical and humanistic terms. They have historical perspectives on pressing contemporary issues. And they emphasize collaborative and transdisciplinary approaches in order to solve some of these problems. What I want to focus on also is how we seek an understanding of the past and the consequences of those decisions on the future. With the Wagner Free Institute of Science, I want to focus on place. So if you're looking around of where we are, where we're seated, this is a 19th century lecture hall. It's been a space for innovative public science education for over 150 years, which is great. On their website, they also talk about the mission of William Wagner, founded um, this institute. And it's not a reflection of the past, but the past itself. But in that, he emphasized education. 
Here's where we have one of the earliest free adult science education programs in the US. But what we want to also talk about is access. So yes, for adults, but also now with children, they offer free science programs and serve over 10,000 children annually. So why is that important? I want to talk about the purpose. Why are we emphasizing increased numbers of girls and women in STEM? Is it the purpose um, for good STEM education to support the capitalist agenda for workforce diversification? Or is it something bigger? If you even think about STEM, the acronym comes really from the National Science Foundation. It's funding, it's federal funds. So why are we trying to push STEM education and particularly for girls and women? So let's talk about a little background information. So we are looking at global competitiveness of the United States. And the United States is now, like I say, fifth behind countries like Sweden and Singapore and Finland in engaging more populations in STEM. So we're losing our global competitiveness. But what Dr. Holly also talked about is girls of color, girls altogether, but particularly girls of color, are losing interest in science by the time they get to middle school. So we're talking about college. College is already gone. We have to figure out how to get to these children much earlier in elementary school, because by the time they get to middle school, the interest is already lost. And we're looking at girls, particularly girls who might live in economically challenged communities. They have less access to advanced math and science courses as well as STEM programs. And so by the time they get to college, they are already behind their counterparts. It should come as no surprise why we're seeing the numbers that we're seeing. That we're seeing women, especially women of color, are underrepresented in the STEM fields. And so what we need to look at is the issue of access and equity. And what I'll emphasize today, or this evening, is how we can use informal programs. What can we do during out-of-school time in order to complement what the formal schools are doing? We cannot depend on the formal schools to do it all. So um, the... Um, American Association of University Women in 2010, they published a report that was called Why So Few? And it was talking about why do we have so few women in STEM, uh, the STEM disciplines and STEM careers. So in it, it says, girls' achievements and interests in science and mathematics shaped, they're shaped by the environment. With that, what can we do? So um, if we put in the belief and potential for intellectual growth, maybe we'll be able to change some of these numbers, or maybe if we create a more of a growth mindset environment, maybe some of these numbers will change. So does the stereotype that boys are better than girls in math and science, is it still in effect today? Is it still playing out? So it should come as no surprise that girls hold themselves to a much higher standard than guys. <laughs> And so even though girls are actually performing at the same level, or maybe even better, they still have self-efficacy issues, or they don't know that, yes, these fields are viable pathways for me. And we have that coupled with negative stereotypes about girls' abilities in math, um, and it measurably lowers their test performance, as well as these cultural factors that we don't really talk too much about have limited girls' interests in STEM and STEM careers. 
So they also gave some suggestions or recommendations of what teachers as well as parents can do. And so they said, well, let's encourage girls to assess their abilities and skills more accurately. Because they're so hard on themselves, let's figure out, let's let them know that they're actually performing at the same level or even better than boys. We can hold more positive opinions of women, even in these masculine positions, um, like scientists or engineers, particularly the physical sciences or the hard sciences. And we can tell girls that their intelligence can expand with experience and learning. Well, we should also pay careful attention to the environment within our classrooms, within our homes, as well as within our workspaces. So if you also look at the National Science Foundation, this is their most recent, this is 2017 report, they focus on three groups. It's women, minorities, or um, children, um, women of color, or people of color, as well as persons with disabilities, and that deals with inclusivity issues. So they're looking in science and engineering, and they reported that 57% of all bachelor's degrees and 50% of all science and engineering bachelor's degrees since the late 1900s, 1990s, are awarded to um, women. So we're seeing some of the numbers increase, and they've um, increased slightly more. Proportion of women is lowest in engineering, computer sciences, and physics. So we're hearing where the physics is coming in. And women are far more likely than men to cite family responsibilities as a reason for not working. So with men, sometimes it's retirement or different issues, but with women, it was mainly, um, they, they couldn't stay in, in it because the STEM disciplines because of their families, trying to balance work um, and family. And there's still a wide gap in degrees earned between the black um, and Latinx communities, as well as the white and Asian counterparts. So, what can we if, we, if we're looking at those statistics, those are statistics when you get to the careers. What's happening in elementary school, in middle school, in high school? What we're seeing in some of these um, communities is that there's a revolving door. There's a revolving door, there's high teacher attrition rates. Um, there are teachers who, with students who have the highest need, they have the least prepared teachers. They're either unprepared or underprepared to expose them to excellent STEM education. Um, and so the, side, uh, the science and math achievement issues, um, especially in urban um, schools, we're seeing it very early on. So the question would be, how can we rewrite this pervasive narrative of girls and women in STEM? What can we do? The first thing we need to um, bring, light, bring to light is the importance of naming. And naming starts with just naming ourselves as well as naming others in which identifications intersect with those issues of power and privilege and social justice. So who are we and how do we fit into the equation? What is our positionality? So as educators, as educational researchers or just researchers, we have to rethink our own positionality as we interact with our participants and as we interact with girls. We're seeing a lot of the reports where we're not necessarily delving deeply into what is actually happening within these spaces. We're publishing research and reports about them, but we're not necessarily articulating their voices. What is the extent to which we are immersed in the culture? Because again, culture is a factor that impacts whether or not girls will persist in STEM. And we also see that it's not enough just to be a member of that group because generations and cultures change over time, so you have to be able to immerse yourself with what's happening within that age and time. We also have to explore what is the true impact of our work. 
So is our work only relevant in the academy or does it have use in the community? What are we doing on the ground? Are we perpetuating the problem? What spaces are we creating? And are we actually creating a difference in the spaces in which we're working? I also argue that we should probably consider new theoretical frameworks. So we need to kind of explore the intersectionality of identities. So if we're seeing um, that not only women are, are um, trailing behind males in some of these um, STEM disciplines, but particularly women of color, then we need to explore what happens when you intersect identities, what happens when you put race, class, gender together. And we should employ novel theoretical lenses to explore what girls and women are doing. So a lot of it is what's not happening. But why don't we put a little bit more emphasis on what they are doing, what is taking place, and provide narrative behind the statistics. So Tara Yosa, she talks about the community cultural wealth model. And with this, um, even in communities that are deemed high poverty, you might deem them dysfunctional or what have you, but there's a lot of wealth that exists. And so just to talk about each one, just a tad bit, she talks about aspirational capital. So your ability to maintain your hopes and dreams even in the midst of real and or perceived barriers. The linguistic capital, looking at the intellectual and social skills attained through communication in more than one language or style, as well as the familial capital, Cultural knowledge nurtured through your kin, your family, that sense of community, that rich history that you bring, as well as social capital. Who are you connected to? What is the networks of people that you have around you and the resources? How are you able to navigate through social institutions? As well as resisting capital. And it's the knowledge and skills fostered through that oppositional behavior that challenges those inequalities as well as inequities. There was a report um, that was just published and it was talking about the unhidden figures. It was actually like a review, a synthesis of literature. And they started talking about how we actually need to employ intersectionality as a theoretical and methodological framework to examine why and how students who are marginalized in STEM fields have distinctive experiences. And again, they're talking about some of the same things, looking at social identities, looking at psychological, um, psychological processes as well as educational outcomes. What are the outcomes, especially when they go across um, identities? So it looked across 60 research studies and it revealed that the following are key, key themes and they focus particularly on black women and girls in STEM. Looking at identity, looking at STEM interests, their confidence levels, their ability to persist, achievement levels, um, their own perceptions about their, again, their self-efficacy uh, and attributions, as well as socializers and support systems that they have in place in order for them to um, remain in the STEM, the STEM field. I also published a conceptual framework as well, because, again, we have to start looking not just at women, but what's happening in girls. And a lot of times, a lot of the research is focusing on formal schools, but there's so much that takes place outside of schools that we don't take the time to actually acknowledge. And so if you look at um, you know, black girls in formal schools, there's some things that's happening. I'm looking at perceived identity as well as their learning context. So in learning context, you're looking what's happening in like the informal spaces, um, 
even in your research study, what we call counter spaces. What is taking place outside um, in these spaces that they create for themselves, these safe spaces against microaggressions or stereotyping or different things like that, as well as issues of um, race, gender, and class. How does it all play a role? So all of that comes together to give a, more of a whole holistic picture of multi-dimensional identities. So all this sounds great, right? But we always have to leave with like how. How does this work? What can we do? So how do we create more equitable learning experiences for girls and for women? Well, the first thing is that we have to get in the game. Everyone has a role to play. You cannot be a bystander. There are institutions that can come together. There are um, disciplines that need to work together. It's just not, it's, it's very complex, as well as we have to work across generations. Looking across historical context as well, how can we fix issues that have been per pervasive over time and over history? And what can we do to work within our own spheres of influence in order to enact change? So if we're looking at informal science education, it's very broad. Um, you, when you think of it, you might think of anything that happens out, um, during out-of-school time. So this can be school field trips, it can be museums, the role of media, the ro role of you know, your family and home, as well as the community. And what I want to put a little bit more emphasis on is the community. So if you look at informal science education, it's published in um, 20, 2009, uh, Fetter and colleagues, they published six strands of um, informal science education, and they're pretty simple. The first one is that you want kids to be excited about learning. Um, a lot of times in school, we focus so much on testing and assessments that we literally swipe creativity and excitement and everything out of our kids. We, it's, not a, it's not a fun place anymore. Um, and so what can we do to bring that excitement back and that natural um, inclination to be curious? Strand two is come to generate, understand, and remember, and use those concepts. So now we're talking about, instead of just the scientific method, we're talking about science and engineering practices. How do they develop behaviors of scientists as well as engineers? And then the strand three is that we want them to begin to observe and make sense of the world around them. So they're no longer taking things at face value. When they go outside, they're asking questions. They're interacting with nature and their environment. And we want them to reflect on science as a way of knowing. So these are the processes, the concepts, as well as institutions of science, so that they're now learning about natural phenomena. The other thing is that we want them to actually start using the language of science, using the tools of science. But my favorite is now that we, we want them to begin thinking of themselves as scientists. When this happens, this deals with identity, and if they start seeing themselves as science, they be scientists, they begin identifying as scientists, then we'll start seeing a shift in how many persist because this becomes who they are and a way of, a way of thinking. So how do you get in the game? What did this come about? We have long tied the divide between the church and the state. And we cannot depend again on the schools to do everything. And so now what can we do even as churches or faith-based institutions to begin helping to solve these types of problems. A lot of kids are going to church two and maybe even three times a week. So children's church or their vacation Bible schools, what are they learning? Is there a space where they can learn, again, some of these uh, scientific practices? Is there a space where we can start mending the two again? 
Historically, faith-based institutions provided some fundamentals for reading as well as arithmetic. They were a place for intellectual thought. And so how can we bring that reemerge again, allow that to reemerge again? And as Dr. Tolley, she talked about and referred to about role models, additional role models, looking at representation. Representation matters in terms of um, mentorship, uh, in terms of just having someone that you can project yourself into that image. And so this is a book that was uh, recently published as well uh, by Stephanie Espy, who was, a, she's a chemical engineer, and this is called The STEM Gems. And she puts 44 careers and 44 women who are currently in those STEM, those STEM careers. Um, and then she also has virtual book clubs and different things like that where they can engage with these scientists or with these mathematicians. And so this has become a great resource to help with representation. This was drawn by a science instructional coach. Her name is Laura Pena, and um, she terms her a STEMinist. And with this, it's a representation of youth agency and civic engagement. I'll talk about some of these uh, pictures. You see a honeybee up there. You might see a quail, a sewing machine, um, he'll play, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. But it's time for us to also allow spaces to enact that liberatory pedagogy, a little bit more freedom in our curriculum that embraces students' cultural resources. So we use culture as the, um, the center, we put it at the center in order to build our education instead of having curriculum that's already developed and culture is an afterthought. So what does this look like? First thing is that we have to reconceptualize. It comes with a reconceptualization with us humanizing science education. If you talk to a teacher and you ask the teacher, what do you teach? And they'll give you a subject, right? And now we want to get to where we're actually humanizing. I teach children this. I teach children science. Depunk that capitalistic agenda for workforce diversification. We will solve that issue if we provide more meaningful experiences for children, especially girls, particularly girls of color. And so if we want to promote access and equity in science, we have to start focusing on the person, the human. So now we can also think about STEM for social justice. And so we're allowing them to engage in um, advocacy issues. Um, they're becoming activists, um, change agents in their communities. And it's, uh, STEM is used as a mechanism now in order to help people. If you ask girls what do they want to do, they might tell you, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people. I want to be a teacher. I want to help people. And so now we need to help, help them to see that using the STEM disciplines is a way that they can help people. So this is a school that I do some work with now um, in Atlanta, Coretta Scott King Young's Leadership Academy. And it's an all-girls, a single-gender school. It's about 400 students, 6th through 12th grade, 100% um, um, African-American or Latina. And the interesting thing about this school is that it's, uh, it's located in a food desert. Okay? So the, the nearest Publix or Kroger or, you know, grocery store is six miles away. And so now they have to figure out, like, what do we do about, about this issue? How can we ensure that we can get access to um, fresh produce and vegetables? And so you can see um, us out here working, and they have um, an edible garden. And in the edible garden, they're able to plant vegetables and herbs. And not only are the students in charge of it, 
um, but it's open to the community. Anyone can come in and as things, they can never keep anything, anything there because as they're ready for, um, as they're ready, um, parents and community members are coming in and they're harvesting, which is great. And so now they're, they're making their own, they're, again, they're solving complex issues. They're making their own um, uh, solutions to community problems. And so they're, they're using STEM, but then it's in a way that is much more meaningful, not just to them, but they're seeing themselves as helping the community. So they also have a, a quails. They had the quail there, and um, this is one of the students, Daisha, and she's in sixth grade, and this is her voice. I am a quail guardian. Quail guardians feed and take care of the quail. We even clean the poop trays. I honestly like quail, and it's a really nice thing to be able to take care of them. We raise quail and learn to be responsible for other living things. The quail are a part of our garden. We put the cracked eggs in the compost bin and put their poop in the bin too. It is good for the garden. Our school is in a food desert, so it's nice to be able to grow things to give away. We also get to build things. We build a quail hospital with wire and scrap and recycled wood. Anytime a quail is hurt, they can be separated to recover. And so this is them actually sharing some meaningful things that they're, they're taking, that's taking place even during school time. Before school, she'll come in, and there's a group of them that come in, and they, they, clean the, they feed the quail, they clean them. Um, they have someone who checks the eggs to make sure that it's grade A, and if it's not, then they can um, you know, use it for other things, such as in their compost or what have you. Or they can sell the, the eggs that are um, grade A, and that's how they're able to sustain their, um, their initiatives. Another one is the Honey Bee Learning Center, which they have done now in partnership with the Metro Atlanta Beekeepers Association and the Beekeep Cause Project. And so now they're understanding the importance of bees. These are students. And so Miala, she said, with the Honey Bee Learning Center, we learned about the importance of bees and actions we can take to save the bees. We want to keep bees in our community because they pollinate flowers and are responsible for one of every three bites we take. We have a garden and the bees help the garden flourish. We have built beehives and take care of the bees by inspecting the hives. We have bee suits and everything. We have extracted honey. The taste is amazing. And they've used that, that same honey and make, they make lip balm and chapsticks and different things again to sustain their programs. Then another example will be the Farm to Table initiative. This is a parent initiative. And parents have their own hydroponic tower gardens. Um, and they grow their own produce. And after they grow their produce, they are able to do cooking demonstrations for the kids. So for my farm to table cooking lesson, this is one of the parents, Ms. Embaum, I prepared okra with corn and tomatoes for the girls and gave them health information about the benefits of okra. It is high in calcium and iron and beneficial for your skin, teeth, and bones. I also gave the girls pointers on how to cook okra. It does not have to be slimy if you add some acid. You can use limes, tomatoes, or vinegar to decrease the slime. Also, it is better to pick okra when it is about the size of your pinky. The lesson was great. Some girls were apprehensive, but they eventually came around. It was early in the morning and they were eating vegetables. I really like the garden, especially with the area we are in where the girls don't have access to the vegetables. I'm starting to see more girls gain an interest in gardening, and I see more involvement over time from parents and students. I love the program. Overall, I really love it because gardening is something we need to revisit in the African-American community. 
This is a way to help alleviate health problems and behavioral issues when it comes to eating and emotional well-being. It is therapeutic to watch and to help things grow. So if you even listen to what she's saying, the science is coming out even of a parent um, in way, meaningful ways to get parents involved. So parent involvement might even look a little different. And also partnerships with other community organizations. This is like a Metro Atlanta urban farm, and I have some of uh, my Georgia State students out there, and I made them learn from, from the uh, community and master garden, gardeners before we ended up going and assisting this, the school. And so again, it's now working across intergenerational partnerships, interdisciplinary, as well as um, across institutions. This is an example from um, I Am STEM Camps, which I've run for um, camps for about the past eight years. And so an example of a thematic unit could be looking at um, recycling composting. And so I mentioned some of the strands to you. Were they able to experience excitement? Were they able to use some of the scientific knowledge, um, language, and tools? And so an example, could, an activity can be visiting a local transfer facility, okay? With that, a learning goal could be learning about the recycling program in their community and discuss the advantages of recycling locally and also some of the global impacts of their actions. So they're using some of those science and engineering practices in doing so, but they're able to also learn about the communities. One thing that was uh, very impactful with this is that not, not, only did, not only did they see the transfer facility where recycling was happening, but also the sanitation facilities. And we also talked about where um, the, their, their utility companies, where that was located. And with that, they were able to see that everything was in their community, particularly where the dump, you know, dump is. And so we had to talk about that. We talked about that. We talked about property values, the impact of property values. How does property values um, translate into funding for schools? And so you can have some more of those critical conversations with them, and then they can find out how they can be a part. So she's actually planning a public service announcement. So we have to develop these counter spaces, develop these spaces that are safe, that are safe for them to be themselves and for them to find meaningful ways in order to gauge, engage in STEM. So there has to be some kind of alignment between the girls' lived experiences in their homes and communities and the cultural norms of the school. We also have to enact liberatory pedagogy, again, that embraces those cultural resources and shift how we're engaging girls. If we shift how we're engaging girls, then we will shift the uh, trajectory that they, um, that they go because, again, they'll begin to see themselves in STEM. We should also promote some more activism within STEM learning spaces and embrace diversity and inclusivity. So let's get in the game to rewrite narratives by changing the culture of science. It's time for us to act. Thank you. Thank you both. I have a huge number of questions, but I'm going to let everyone go first. <laughs> questions? Hi, um, thank you guys both so much for giving this wonderful presentation to us this evening. This has been incredible. And again, I think about us in some ways in the audience being much like the, uh, the early um, 
audiences that were here, you know, 100 years ago. What a wonderful way to start the presentation with that image. Um, so Dr. King had talked a lot about um, intergenerational science, which I thought was really exciting. And I wondered whether, uh, Dr. Catoli, um, you would have maybe some anecdotal examples that you have seen in your research, again, um, sort of historically, whether there are um, interesting stories about intergenerational um, science, um, especially in colleges, maybe in departments from one, like an older generation of professors and their students. Thank you. That is a really good question, but I don't, I, there are a lot of stories though, or instances where, especially in the 19th century, male mentors, men were important in opening doors for women. It wasn't only women opening doors for women. I guess one of the examples that I always felt I would love to do a book on someday, and I don't know that that will happen at all, was Liberty Hyde Bailey. He was a professor, and for a while, he was the head of the Agricultural Sciences Department at Cornell University when Cornell was first established. He was also a big, um, big in the nature study movement, so he would really have supported your gardening and learning about nature and tying science into nature. But he actually was essential in hiring Anna Comstock, who became the first faculty member there in the natural science, in the agriculture department at Cornell. And um, everybody, I'm a little tired. I'm coming off of recovering from chemo. So forgive me, you can help me out here a little bit. But the scientist who won the um, Nobel Prize for her work on corn at Cornell. Thank you. Barbara McClintock was at Cornell's Department of Agriculture, and I always wondered about the fact that the mentors that she cited had been young professors when Liberty Hyde Bailey was there. And there's something about the culture, I think, that developed at Cornell that is significant. And that's, that's all I'm going to say. Thank you for some really fascinating talks. I just wanted to bring up two examples, not by way of question, but to add to your data, one of which is that women were called, the first computers were women during the war. And here in Philadelphia, especially with the ENIAC, well, ENIAC's also here, but they actually were there to um, calculate trajectories of bullets. They were what were computers. So women should know this. I think girls should know that. The first computers were not machines, they were girls um, <laughs> during the war when there were no men to do this work. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting thing to add. And astronomers, um, there's some fantastic stories about astronomers. I remember, I remember this lady, but not her name, unfortunately, at Yale when I was there, who at 97 still came to work every day. And one of the first astronomers who had gone up to see the passing of Venus, um, which happened a few years ago, you know, it happens every hundred and whatever years. And she was separated by just one generation. Her father, because she was already, you know, in her 90s by the time she was able to see it, she was separated by one generation from the previous passing of Venus in the late 19th century. So this was always a very cool thing to tell kids, I think. Yes. That, um... Hello. And um, I also would like to say thank you for your um, beautiful program that you just gave. But um, I would like to know what could I get my daughter involved with now at her age that will help grow her STEM passion? Do you want to start? 
She's six years old. She's in the first grade. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and I, because uh, this is focused particularly on girls, I try to stay on there. But for programming, so a lot of the work that I'm starting to do is helping local organizations develop their own STEM programs. Because again, they need to be context specific. And so um, I am STEM camp. We started it, and um, mainly my interest has always been in the middle grades, like between fourth through eighth grade, because that's when, again, you start losing that interest. But then I started seeing that the earlier that we get them involved, the better off. So uh, now it goes from pre-K all the way up through 12th grade. And with the four-year-olds, um, not only do we do a little bit of um, just, you know, the normal uh, ABC hand, uh, penmanship, um, but then they're also building, they're creating, they're designing, they're asking questions, they're breaking <laughs> things. And so we're, at, we're getting them into the, what is making, what does tinkering look like, what does it feel like? And training um, community organizations as well as local schools, as well as churches, so that anyone can do that. Parents can do that. If you're homeschooling your kids, you're able to do some of this stuff, bring it to your house. Not looking for you know, chemicals. You don't need chemicals for everything. How can you use things from the dollar store or from you know, household products in order to engage them with science or even just your local community, going outside, finding you know, creeks, finding anything, and then building a project off of that. And so looking, thinking about science a little bit differently so that it's more accessible. Um, something that you know, kind of it gets underneath my skin a little bit is when I see that these STEM programs are so expensive. They're so expensive, and really for no reason. They're just so expensive, and it's a money-making thing. But it doesn't have to be that way. And if you don't have $300 to send you know, your kids to STEM camp for a week, how can you create your own? And that's what I'm going to, is like, how can we do this by ourselves? How can we work within our own community in order to promote STEM education? Because science is everywhere. If I could jump in, um, just because I grew up in a household of scientists and my kids ended up going into science, at least my daughter became a physicist. So when she was six, I just let her play the way my dad helped my sister and I play. Um, one example would be to get bubbles, you know, just a mix of the bubbles that you blow and say, you know, how big a bubble can you blow on this table? And then see if she could measure it in peanuts going across, or Cheerios, or toothpicks. Have her and a friend and measure the diameter of bubbles That's and it. start talking about, let's measure the width or diameter of these bubbles. Find a snail in the backyard and tie a string between two sticks and see if a snail can walk a tightrope. Um, see how far the snail can go in a snail race with another snail and measure it in some way with some kind of implement for a six-year-old. It's got to just be fun. It should be exploration, I think, and then when you get to school, you can do more. But I think a parent can do a lot. A parent can do the most, I yeah. think. We talked about that at lunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we won on this. Because I started this as a parent. It's like, what program yeah. would I want for my own kids? Yeah. And that's where, you know, where it goes. Yeah. Thank you both so much for um, your talks. I think it's, everyone is, I hope as fascinated as I am in any case. Uh, my concern always when I hear about um, great educational programs and great ideas for getting girls interested in science is, well, you know, of course they might be interested in science, like there's so much cool stuff to discover there, uh, but what happens when they get older and they meet a world of science that 
isn't humanized, that maybe views it through the capitalist agenda of how can we even make money trying to get people that look like you into yeah. science. And so, I mean, it feels almost like a bucket of cold water in, in some sense, but then uh, I would like to hear your views on how, how even if we have all of these great things at six years of age or 10 years of age when we're still young, how can we also change the culture of science so that it, you, know, you don't have to have that bucket of cold water oh. once you grow up? Well, I live in Silicon Valley, so the answer from where I live would be, you know, tell a girl she can start her own company. <laughs> and uh, girls can start their own companies. They're doing it. Um, she can go into whatever field she wants, and if she wants to, you know, develop a better water purifier, that would be great. If she wants to develop a better water storage system, that would be wonderful. If she wants to work on the problem of encouraging grass-fed ranching, so grass, grass ranching, so that we can cut down on the carbon in the atmosphere. There's so much in science that makes the world better. If you want to change science, you need to be one of the changers of science. And whether a girl wants to do that or not, whether a girl who starts playing with bubbles goes into science or not, it doesn't, that's not the important thing. I think the important thing is to encourage every girl to just pursue her interests, reach her potential, and do something meaningful in the world. I think what you're asking is how, what happens when, you know, they're prepared, but they meet that hostile environment yeah. where they're not, they don't belong, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and that's tough. I don't think that we can change that, you know, immediately. It's not going to. But if we start having these types of conversations and we're, we start doing things. So what happens is that we have other people who are perpetuating the same culture even women who are perpetuating the same culture. Like, this is what happened to me, and so I'm gonna project that onto you. And so we have to figure out how do we change it, how do we change that culture so that it is more inviting. And again, I think that does happen with you finding a, a lot more meaning in what you're doing and in the work that you're doing and how you're engaging in science. I think that will help you to begin changing the culture because now you're not doing it for a paycheck. When you went in there, you went in for a purpose. And even with some of this hostility around you, you're still going to fulfill your purpose. It's not going to kind of get you off track. And you can be a beacon of light that you know, starts to change what's happening in the sciences. So I, I feel hopeful. I feel maybe a little too optimistic. But I, <laughs> I do think that it can begin to change once we start having the right conversations. You were mentioning the aspects of biology. And nowadays, you're talking about gardens. But you didn't mention anything about the other part, the other half working with animals. And I know most girls go through a point of wanting to be a vet, and of course they're in love with horses mm. at, at, up to about age 12 or so. So I'm wondering if, if that can be more integrated into the school curriculum, working with feral cats, dogs that need training, horses if there are any around, you know, just getting them engaged and so many women do become vets or at least vet techs mm -hmm. and that is the scientific mindset right there mm -hmm. so it's, it's a good way to encourage that as much as we've been doing so far hasn't you know I mean I guess that, again that's all contextual because if you're in a place where you have access to horses and different things like that then it makes it a little easier what but about what, the quail but exactly but we do have the quail <laughs> yeah. we have the 
we have the chicken coop as well that I didn't talk about, and we have the honeybees. And so those are the ways that they're engaging in animals and taking care, learning how to take care of other living things. And so, um, and they love it. They take great pride in it. And I wish, you know, when we have local things, you know, I had to travel for this, but when we have local presentations, I bring them in and they talk about it. They bring, they bring their quail. Each, each quail has a name and they adopt the quail. Um, some of them they keep at the schoolhouse, and some of them they adopt, they take them home, they teach their brothers and sisters how to take care of them. I mean, it really is, it's powerful. Um, and the quail have their own personalities, they have everything, <laughs> so they love it, and we want them to continue, to continue taking pride in it. And we have a few who are interested in becoming vets, mm -hmm. and so we want to continue keeping that. And the, the principal at first, she was kind of hesitant to bring live animals on her campus. Um, but afterwards, when she sees the impact on it, she's just telling us to keep them coming. <laughs> and not all science is learned in schools. The yeah. Girl Scouts has a wonderful merit badge on mm -hmm. caring for animals. Um, I think I was a scout leader during, when my kids were in elementary, so for three years. I think it took girls like two months to get through that badge. And I, some of them really felt the learning experience was more useful than what they got in their elementary school anyway. Yeah. So there are places. Hi, and uh, thank you uh, both for, for, the, for the presentation. It was uh, really sort of enlightening. Uh, I wanted to ask a, a question about sort of the relationship between uh, STEM education for girls and, and arts and humanities education for girls. Uh, there's been a push from some segments of, uh, of sort of the education, education community towards uh, moving from STEM to STEAM. Uh, and I guess my question is, what do you think the advantages of integrating the arts into a STEM curriculum are or aren't? And sort of what, are your, what is your position on STEM versus STEAM, and that's asked as a non-polemical non question, I'm just genuinely curious. So, although we talk about STEM, we're talking about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, some of those disciplines that we're, you know, we're pushing to get more girls represented in. We don't necessarily have an underrepresentation in the arts. However, I don't believe that you can teach any of those effectively without including the arts. And so it's very much STEAM related. Everything that we do is visual arts, performing arts. Uh, we use technology. They're able to infuse their own creativity. Um, and this can be even, again, related to culture. Some of them may do public service announcements. Some of them may do raps. Some of them may do uh, their own stop motion videos. I could show some of that, but I didn't want it to be a technical difficulty. And then, you know, we're, you know trying to fumble through it. But we have opportunities for them to infuse the arts and everything that we do. We actually have a um, teacher in one of the programs that's happening in Florida, and she is in, she's into line dance, ballroom dancing, stepping, and so she teaches them, and she teaches the math behind it. And so you hear the kids learning how to dance and how to interact with each other, and they're going one and two and three and four, <laughs> you know, moving their feet. And so we're, we're learning rhythm, Life happens with a rhythm. Everything is in rhythms and seasons. And so we can have those conversations as well. But they enjoy learning um, and through the arts. And so yes, the arts are essential to learning the STEM disciplines. I think actually the impetus to put the A in STEAM actually comes from, in my area, it came from engineers and scientists. Um, well, that's, that's what I remember is it's where the voices were speaking up. A lot of scientists and mathematicians are musicians. Yeah. A lot of them are involved in the arts. Uh, MIT, I'll just give an example of MIT for a minute because their motto is mind and hand. And at MIT, that includes the arts. So when you apply to MIT, I learned this when my daughter applied. When you apply to MIT, you could submit a music portfolio. You can be a top athlete. You can be, have 
been a, a prize winner at the Olympiads, right, the Science Olympiads, or you can submit an art portfolio and it's evaluated at MIT and it's given a certain score and it provides a kind of boost, I guess. They value it that highly. Any more questions? Anyone need the mobile mic to come visit? <laughs> um, well, it is 7.30, so, and both of these um, women have come a long way to be with us and we thank them for fantastic presentations. Um, a lot to think about, and I want to say that the conversation isn't over. Um, you can go online. Uh, there is the piece of paper that we gave you when you came in. You can pick it up um, on the website. This will be posted. There will be commentary from other scholars, and you can actually join in that conversation. There will be interaction um, and also resources posted for continuing to learn about the topic. Um, you can also see other presentations that have been done as part of this series by the consortium with other partners besides the Wagner. And um, I want to say for anyone who's interested as well, we do other science programs and um, the mom with her daughter, uh, please come talk to us later. There are a lot of programs in Philadelphia. The free library branches do summer in the science at many branches. Um, science summer programs, and the Philadelphia Science Festival will be in late April. We'll have a program here, be an ornithologist on April 28th, and lots of other things going on. So please come back and see us, all of you, no matter what age, gender, or any other background you come from. Um, we do do science and history of science, and we thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and please visit chstm.org slash girls in STEM to continue the conversation.